Hi, everyone. Just a note. This podcast was recorded during the time that we were all sheltering in place due to the pandemic and prior to current world events. Welcome to The Awardist, the podcast from Entertainment Weekly that takes you inside this year's Emmy race with interviews, analysis, and more. I'm Sarah Rodman, Executive Editor at Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Kristen Baldwin, TV critic at Entertainment Weekly. And we are so excited to keep talking about TV because it's really, it's all we do. Kristen has a child. I have Mm -hmm. friends and family, but really all we do is talk about television. So we're so excited for you to join us to do that. Very, very true. And it turns out that this episode is airing just as the voting for the first phase of the Emmys is about to close. So we would like to take this reverent moment and use it to make a wish to the Emmy gods. I'm not sure what we'll be sacrificing. It won't be a human. I know that much. Mm -hmm. We're not barbarians, Mm -hmm. but we will be sacrificing something later in order to make these Emmy wishes come true. What is your, your final plea to the Academy, Kristen, who would you like to see get a nomination? I'm going to get into the zone. Okay. Dear Emmy gods. Thank you for the bounty you have poured upon us yet again this season. In your wisdom and glory, please make sure that this season, Ray Seahorn from Better Call Saul gets a freaking nomination, which she should have had the last two seasons. I am not doubting you. I am just knowing that in your all-knowing wisdom, you're waiting until this season to give her the nomination because now is when she really, 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 really deserves it. Amen. That was very good. Thank you. Thank you. My supplication will be on behalf of Hank Azaria as Brockmire. This is far and away the best role Hank Azaria has ever had. And I say that as someone who is a diehard Simpsons person, Mm -hmm. as someone who actually watched the entirety of Huff on Showtime. (laughs) (laughs) Deep cut, my friend. Deep cut. I love this man, but... This has been a criminally overlooked performance. It is hilarious and heartbreaking and full of pathos. And dear Emmy gods, I know you appreciate all of those things. I know it's not as showy as some of the things that you normally enjoy, but it is heartfelt. He is beloved in the community. And I believe that he deserves this nomination. Please bestow it upon him. Amen. Amen. All right. I feel like we've done our part. We did. We did. It's it's so funny. It's the actors and the shows and the producers and the networks and the studios that are up at five in the morning to hear these nominations when they come out. But we're just as excited, even though we understand that, like, cosmically, it is meaningless. <laughs> but it's still super fun. Exactly. So we are looking forward to it. And maybe particularly this year for a little Emmy escapism, we are talking about outstanding limited series or TV movie. So this is the entire category. Before we get to who might be contending in this year's race, it's time to welcome in our quiz master general <laughs> slash podcast producer, Noah Eberhardt. How are you, Noah? I'm doing okay. We are excited for whatever fresh trivia hell you have for us today. We did so poorly last week after we having saw. done so well previously. So we are hoping to redeem ourselves. Well, I will show you no mercy, so let's get into it. In the category of Outstanding Limited Series, there is a three-way tie between networks. 
in terms of whose shows have won the category the most. Which three networks and how many times have they won? Oh, that's, that's a very complicated. <laughs> so definitely the three networks. HBO is obviously yes. has to be one of them. FX has to be one. Oh, good call. So we're just going to do this together. Yeah, I think of this is a, t- against a, each other. a multi-part thing we where we have to work up. together. So H- HBO, FX, FX, and I mean, do we want to say Showtime or no, like we no? Don't. I don't think we do. As much as love as we have for our Showtime brethren, I don't think this is going to be a don't think it's there. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's HBO, it's FX, and maybe we. Well, I'm trying to think. Is it limited a broadcast series. network? It's got to be. It's got to be like NBC or. If it's limited series TV movie, then you got to throw NBC in there, I think. Right. Back when they made like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yeah. But, so that's the first part. Are we anywhere near correct? No. The three networks are HBO, NBC, and PBS. <gasps> PBS! Of PBS! All the freaking Grandchesters and. Cordell you know, Abbey. Ma- Masterpiece Theater. Do you want to guess how many times they've won? Yes, I'm going to say eight. I'm going to say ten. It is ten. <gasps> oh, good job, Kristen. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It was completely random. All right, so what year did this category first appear at the Emmys? It's gone under a few different names, but what year was the first iteration of the category? I'm going to say it's probably earlier than we think it is. Right. So I'm going to say 1986. I'll do the one dollar style and say 1981. The answer is 1973. Oh, oh. so closest with that? Oh no, you went over. So I went over. So I don't know. We both lost. I know. I know. <laughs> wow, really? Well, we're going to need to go back and look and see what those uh, movies were back in I the day. I wonder if, like, an, an American Family, which was the original reality show with Lance Loud. Remember that? I bet right, that was nominated family. in that uh, category. But anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Noah. Thank you so much. It has been a pretty good year for this, Kristen, although yeah. I feel like we were talking about maybe not as good as it has been in most recent years past. Yeah. I mean, if you look at last year's nominees, uh, that was a jam-packed category. We had Chernobyl from HBO, which won. Escape at Danamora from Showtime, Fosse Verdon from FX, Sharp Objects, HBO, and When They See Us from Netflix, all of which were great. Uh, And it was a little bit more competitive last year. But I do think that, like, there are definitely enough contenders for this category, but it doesn't seem like there's a very clear, obvious challenger to the real frontrunner, which is Watchmen. Oh, absolutely. There's there was a lot of good stuff this year. And I think that we will be able to fairly confidently say that the category will be Watchmen, Unbelievable from Netflix, Mrs. America from FX on Hulu, Mm -hmm. Little Fires Everywhere from Hulu and Hollywood from Netflix. I feel very confident that that will be the category and that if something else sneaks in, that it will be. I know this much is true from HBO, which is the series that has Mark Ruffalo playing twins, which is always awards Mm -hmm. bait. I think there are a couple other, The Plot Against America, David Simon, which is the adaptation of the novel, and then The Eddie, which we talked about last week a little bit as well on Netflix. But 
I feel like Hollywood, even with all the bad <laughs> reviews or the mixed reviews, Netflix will back up the money truck to campaign for that. And I think it'll probably slip in in that last slot, like you said. And I also think actors love actors, right? So oh, this is do. a show that is chock full of actors to love, well liked both young and old, several generations, some really great performances. I don't think it has a shot at winning, but I think it very much has a shot at getting nominated. Is there anything, Kristen, that you are hoping will be on there that we have not mentioned already? No, but I do have something on my wish list, which is a little rude, but I'm just going to say it anyway. My wish is that maybe Hollywood doesn't get nominated so that Ryan Murphy will not focus on that type of whimsical programming. And maybe he will just get back to focusing on, you know, American Crime Story impeachment. He's got the new uh, American Horror Story spinoffs. Like, get back into that. I mean, I understand he's got plenty of other things going on Netflix. Let's not start having him think about Hollywood season two, which I feel like might happen if it gets a nomination. So let's let's just shift his focus elsewhere, Academy. Patty Lupone's so mad at you right now. I know. But you know what? <laughs> Something tells me she'll work again. It'll be fine. Yeah, I think it would be okay, too. I would actually like to see a spinoff of just the older characters. Right. Can we just get like a show about like how, now that Hollywood is living in this like alternate universe where everything's swell for like right. women and people of color and the LGBTQ community. Like, let's see those older actors like revel in it. Like, yeah, maybe- like a, a buddy comedy with Patty Lapone and Holland Taylor. Come on. Absolutely. That's what we need would to watch. see happen. Yes, absolutely would watch. Another show that I actually would like to see a second season of, but I don't know how they would do it. It is Mrs. America, just because I thought the performances mm-hmm. on it were so great. There were definitely issues with the show in terms of I think in the way that there are always issues when you're basing something on a true story that is relatively well known. But I thought the performances in this were so excellent and I was very impressed with Kate Blanchett. So I was excited to get a chance to talk to her in our interview today. And we covered a lot of ground from second wave feminism to farm animals and our mutual love of John Slattery. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. How is it going? It's the new normal, I guess. Um, how, how's it for you? I haven't seen another human being that I know in 46 days, so it's weird. Yeah, I hadn't left the house for five weeks. I'm homeschooling four kids right now. Ooh. And I went to pick, pick up a socially distanced pizza. And a friend of mine was in the socially distanced line. And we started to do that movement of running towards one another and just stopped. And looked at one another and it's, it's having to, it's, it's shutting down one's natural instincts. Absolutely. One thing that I do know and that we're asking everybody is that we're all watching stuff, reading stuff, listening to music. What are the things that have been bringing you solace or enjoyment during this time? You know, I, I've been going back in time. Mm -hmm. And so I had watched 
The Sopranos and mm. thought that I had totally imbibed it. I've I've gone back again with my kids and and we're watching it as a family. And so it's a you know obviously they they've got school commitments and I've got publicity commitments and and trying right. to sort of you know keep developing work and also going into the garden. We've got four pigs. You know there's a lot to be getting on with. But we wow. we we cannot progress with the next episode of The Sopranos unless we're all together. And it is not only is it a seminal piece of television, the performances, the storytelling adventures, really to watch it again, I feel like I'm only beginning to understand it. So that's been a really amazing thing. That is so great. I feel like that I know several people watching The Sopranos. I have gone back to Cheers for some reason, which is high school <laughs> error for me. Yeah. I got to yeah. talk to Ted Danson for this the other day and I'm like, dude, Cheers. It was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> not that Mash. we didn't know that. But still, we're just going back to the things that like we can dig into and that give us something. But a friend of mine also sent me this this, uh, book. We talked about it jokingly several months ago. It's a very slim tome about how to disappear completely. Uh, It's it's how to not only get off the grid, but to erase your identity. And Mm -hmm. it was written back in, I think in the early 80s. And so I've been investing in, you know, in investigating this, this very slim book about how one, fantasizing about how one could actually completely erase oneself. Mm-hmm. Not, not in the sense of ceasing to exist, but just existing in an entirely different way. So that's kind of, I've been reading sort of a lot of poetry and also, you know, a lot of children's books, to be honest. My eldest is 18 mm-hmm. and my youngest is five. Wow. Okay. So you've got a lot going on. God bless you. It's noisy, but it's always noisy. Well, I mean, and here like is a place where you actually sort of intersect with Phyllis Schlafly. I mean, we're here to talk about Mrs. America, which I have enjoyed so much. I'm glad. This is a, a topic that I am personally very interested in and that I knew something about, but I feel like I have learned from the show, which I feel like that's feedback I've heard from other people who are watching it. And I think that for some people, they're coming to this material for the first time. But one of the things that is so compelling to me is that Phyllis had six children. She truly was a wife and a mother, and that was part of her identity. And yet she went and did this full-time gig trying, among other things in her career, to stop the ERA, which is what the show is about. But I wonder if there is a level on which you're like, I understand this woman, if maybe you're not completely ideologically aligned with everything she believed in, probably, necessarily. I mean, there are probably places that you do intersect too. But just on that base level, as a working mom, like, wow, she was working hard at a time that that wasn't super common or accepted. No, I mean, she's a very sort of contradictory and polarizing figure and you're right you know I'm a mother of four and I've been married for a very long time coming up to 24 years when you play any character you do look for points of intersection but I'm also interested in those points of divergence because Mm. the difference between art and politics is that in art you don't sit in judgment you know the difference between Gorky and Chekhov is that very space is that the, the, the politics is a place where of judgment and ideology and mm-hmm. art is a place where you ask questions, you sit in the grey areas, in the nuance. I'm very proud of, of being part of a series, I think, that takes a really deep time dive into the different 
perspectives that took place in the 70s. In the, in what I perceived, like you, I thought I knew a lot about that particular period, but it turns out I didn't. Mm-hmm. And that the, the women are not a monolith. The women's movement was not a monolithic experience. There, it, it held an equal and opposite movement of the self-described traditional women's movement, of which Phyllis was um, one of the many facets of that movement. And um, it was a much more hierarchically organised movement than the women's mm-hmm. movement. It was a privilege and a challenge, I think, investigating that part of it because she is such a polarizing figure. Yeah, because it really does feel like as you go through the story and it's so skillfully woven together that on paper, this is a woman who should have been on the other side. <laughs> you think that like, why wouldn't you want to go to law school? You want to advance, you have these ambitions and yet the world that you are choosing to put yourself in is telling you you shouldn't do that on some level. And so it's just so curious. She was so bright. She was so driven. And there's parts of that, I think, that we just associate with progressivism. You know, I think she was an alpha, and she'd probably say that about herself. But she was also an individualist. And everything about her pointed to order and tradition and hierarchy and part of American culture, which was all about exceptionalism, is that if you work hard enough, you can get to the top. Her exemplar growing up was her father was out of work for quite a long time. You know, he was probably quite exceptional in and of himself, but he, but it was her mother that had to work seven days a week, you know, two jobs to put them through a very private, exclusive Catholic girls' school. So she had an example of a mother who went to work, but yet her familial structure was very patriarchal. Mm-hmm. So she was, from the get-go, I think that there was a, a rift and she worked hard and she was exceptional. And I think that, but she also wanted a very traditional lifestyle. And I think her life spoke to that schism and to those those contradictions. Like she would say, you know, she gave many, many interviews and she would say in the same breath that my mother had to work because of economic necessity, but I think women have freedom of choice. Those two sentences mm. are mutually exclusive. Working for economic necessity is not freedom of choice. It's no choice. No, it's no choice. And, I, and so rather than identifying with those people like her mother who were in a very precarious and difficult situation, she chose to align herself with those people who survived that experience. Mm-hmm. Even though she had a very challenging background and she worked incredibly hard, I think it probably left her with a distinct lack of empathy. Right. But in a way, I, I kind of shy away from these pejorative judgments because I think my job as an actor is not to tell an audience who Phyllis is. It's not my job to position her in a kind of a a litmus test between goodies and baddies. It's to throw all that open in in relief of all of the incredible figures in the women's liberation movement, second wave feminism, and allow the audience to have a nuanced, engaged response. I do think that in in the in the wake of the 2016 election, you know, we're feeling this right now. You know, with in with the pandemic, is that there is you, we have to be engaged and awake. This is not a time yes. for complacency, and it's a time for nuance, which is what you're talking about. That it's not just vilification. It's not good guys and bad guys. It is yeah. we're all human beings that need to survive, and we have to. In order to do that, we have to find some kind of common ground to make that work for all of us. I mean, that's the thing that we're learning more than ever now. And just as 
Phyllis was part of something that was not monolithic, the pro-ERA movement, it clearly was not monolithic either. You were talking about hierarchical organization in the conservative side of things, that lack Mm. of intersectionality is a thing that is still haunting us today, that is causing problems. I mean, it's classism. I mean, it comes down to us not listening to each other, that my problem is more important than your problem. My needs are more important than your needs. And I feel like this is opening people's eyes to how we got from there to here and maybe we haven't gotten as far as we thought we have. Yeah, and I think I do think it's it's that it's the when you really delve deep dive into what intersectionality can mean and can mm. offer people, it's it's quite confronting for people because they have to deal with narratives other than the one that they've grown up with. And I think that, you know, it's something that the series really does deal with mm-hmm. is that the, the inclusive nature of feminism and female equality is it was used as a downfall rather than a strength. And I think that the, the only reason to delve into recent history is to, to learn from that experience and say, well, how can we turn what was considered to be a downfall into a strength? Something that, that Phyllis actually expresses in the in the in the series is it's one voice one message i am going to be the mouthpiece for this movement and i'm going to deal and and process our what we were hoped to achieve through the existing male patriarchal structure right and the feminists were trying to reinvent the wheel in a way that was inclusive not only of all of the cornucopia of female experience but equality is equality for men and for women Phyllis took control of the language. She made feminists synonymous with men-hating, home-breaking, economically irresponsible, anti-family individuals. I'm a feminist. A feminist, I've got four children. You know, I've got a successful marriage. Why, Why are those things mutually exclusive? And so I think that through the 80s and 90s, we we inherited this sense of what feminists stood for that was really different to to what the movement at the foundational part of the movement which is this what the series deals with is it's mm-hmm. equality it's not about angry destruction and yeah. throwing away men and it's so it's amazing that you see phyllis doing things and phyllis did things historically truthfully did things that you see tactics of fear and divisiveness that work so well that they are still part of the playbook. I mean, and whatever you may think about that politically, it's admirable on the level that what she did worked and people are still doing it. (laughs) Well, yes, the the language that came out of that, you know, she turned the anti-ERA into becoming pro-family and pro-life and synonymous with being pro-American. You know, and, and, and the other thing that's difficult, I think, to, to, to remember, given the outcomes, is that they were, they were the outsiders. You know, the, the series right. is, in a way, a lot, in a lot of senses, is a David and Goliath story with Phyllis and the uh, self-identified traditional women being the Davids because right. it was really against all odds that she stalled the ERA. And some do say that she did it with the support of the insurance lobby because mm. until, you know, the, 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 um, the recent movements to try and enshrine sort of healthcare, it was a kind of an, an economic boon for the insurance companies that women were identified as being, you know, different contributors to those funds. Right. Absolutely. Follow the money. Yeah. You know, it's, there's so much here. And like, if you sort of 
mentally for a moment, divorce yourself from the real life aspect of it. What a rich character to play. Like, yes, she was a real person. And so I'm guessing you feel some sense of responsibility to respectfulness. But just from an acting standpoint, it must have been like a wonderful challenge. I think when you're playing someone who is as polarizing as her and and, look, and as we all age we our our personalities our outlooks our um what we say and what we do it, it does calcify mm. um and so my my understanding of who she was as a as a political figure really came out of her support of the trump campaign yeah. and so i reversed and engineered my understanding of her from that place and so i, w- I went back to the source you know i went back to something that she considered a, a veritable rendition of of her life and times, which was mm. her authorized biography by Carol Feltensel, who was associate producer on the on the series Sweetheart of the Silent Majority. So I, I went back to her in her own words, and I trusted that the juxtaposition of all of the different perspectives that we wanted to give voice to in the series would would allow the kind of the three-dimensionality of, of, of the characters to exist. But, you know, it's hard, I think, when you have some people in your ear saying, well, this is just going to be a, a left-wing version of events and right. well, this is going to be, how could you play someone like her? I had people telling that stuff to me, you know, in one ear and the other ear. So I just had to kind of say, well, I'm just trying to create a, a three-dimensional human being and somewhere um, in between all of those different versions of events, whether she's at Joan of Arc or the Antichrist, sits a person. Right. That's perfect. That's exactly it. The needle that you are threading here is so precise to get it right so people aren't like, well, she's the villain that I thought she was, or maybe she wasn't that bad. Like the place to like go up the middle on that. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. And not just you, but that Tracy Ullman, that Margot Martindale, I just, this cast of actors. Amazing. We're so lucky. I mean, we've got Elizabeth Banks and we've got Rose Byrne, you know, with and um, Uzo Aduba. I mean, we've part one extraordinarily revelatory episodes because each episode really does take a different perspective. Phyllis is kind of the narrative through line. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a producer, that was really important to me that I that I gave space and airtime air to all of those different characters and so that they were all dealing with similar challenges and hurdles and speed bumps, you know, even though they were on, you know, different sides of the, of, of the party line. But one, a revelatory episode is, is the one that deals with Shirley Chisholm. Unbelievable. And people don't know. That was the one that I was so excited to see because I'm clapping. That's bad. People don't yes. know. <laughs> <laughs> and Uzo is so good. And that episode yes. too, I think, is such a high point for the series in general, partially because it is one of, I would say, three total that really, you would not think that there was comedy in this story. Not that yeah. there's comedy in life. So there's comedy in every story. Yes. But this was very serious, very urgent, pioneering story. But there are some moments in that episode that are just laugh out loud funny. Yeah. And again, a tough needle to thread in like a something that you want people to ponder. But I think that's what's so great is giving everybody their own thing, lets you see the whole tapestry, right? That it is 
okay, now I understand each one. So we can come back to the episode where you go on the Tom Snyder show. And so we know more about everyone as we go along. I mean, I think Dobby Waller, the um, creator and your writers and directors, were you as a producer, just like, oh my goodness, these scripts, the way this is structured, were you just so impressed? My partner in crime playing Fred Schlafly was John Slattery. And Mm -hmm. I adore him both as a human being and as an actor. I mean, there could not be a more generous actor to to work opposite. And having Bobby Cannavale, and it was really the closest you'd get to theatre. And that we'd finally found um, the transcripts and the videotape of that particular episode. Oh, of the Tom Snyder show. Yeah. Wow. You know, I said to Laure Clément, de Clément Tonnerre, who was directing it, I said, we've really got to be able to do this like a like it's live with overlaps. And so we worked, we worked, Ari and I worked a lot with, you know, because we were constantly interrupting one another, that we were mic'd for overlaps. And it was so exciting. And we did it over one evening. Um, and I think we finished about three in the morning. It was fantastic. It was, that was a real highlight for me, actually, filming that. That, um, that sequence. It's so excellent. Ari, who I love, is so good in it. But Bobby Cannavale killing yeah. it as Tom Snyder. I know he came in at the 11th hour. With those sidebirds. And just like he has the, the gruffness and the <laughs> sort of like humor, but seriousness. And I, yeah. I am a Tom Snyder fan. And, uh, oh, really? Was, yeah, I used to watch his, his late night show. So not the one that you were depicting there, but the one that came after that one. It was like 1.30 in the morning. It was the same time slot, but they called it something else. And he was just so different and smart. And he, Tom Snyder was a real character. And I just, I was, it's like a weird thing for me to be into, but I thought Bobby was great. <laughs> no, because I, I had never seen that stuff. You know, yeah, not growing no. up in America. It was so interesting. I mean, most people had it. It came on at 1.30 in the morning, but, you know, I was a quirky teenager. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> but uh, I just love late night TV in general. But just with each episode, with the unveiling of the new Adam Brody to do this, they got Ari oh, Grainer to do this. Wasn't great? That whole episode, you know, about having to come out to your husband who you love and the complexity of that, it's really, it's something special. Ari is really incredible. Everyone is so good in this. There are no wrong notes and you do the thing. You're presumably proud of the thing, hopefully, (laughs) but then it it comes out well. And then you're like, oh, but now we're done. Do you have a temptation to be like, we should get the gang back together and figure out another way to do another season of this show? The saga is not over. It's really not over, but it was, I must, I must admit, you know, I was just saying to, to Stacey Scher to, to, tonight, um, who's a wonderful producer and friend, that I found the experience of playing Phyllis incredibly isolating, I must mm. say, and quite lonely. You know, I, I text the girls in the feminist camp and they're all going out and having drinks and meeting up. And, and even though I had Jean Triplehorn and I had Melanie Linsky and I had Sarah Paulson and, and you know, John and James Marsden, I, it was very, very isolating. And so I felt, I felt the desire to to not act like a lone wolf, to, to be connected to people. And whatever you say about Phyllis, you know, between her commitment to her family and her driving all over the country to, to get people to vote, vote against the Equal Rights Amendment and her passion for defence, I don't think she had a lot of people that she was close to. Right. And I think, I think it was quite an isolated, lonely existence. 
Mm. She might have been beloved by a small coterie of people, but I think she was quite lonely, or at least that was what was my experience of playing her. And it was it was a real note to self, you know, about um, how important community is and bringing people up with you and not being the only girl in the room. Yes. The downsides of being the only girl in the room, mm-hmm. I think. I think there are times in all of our lives where you can see the benefit of being the only girl in the room for a multitude of reasons, from the kind of attention that you get, from the kind of control that you have. But I think that we all learn over time, oh, it's much better to have more of us. And then I feel like that's what the show, at least in part, is about. That when there are more of us and we work together, and that maybe that is something that can be instructive for this moment, when there are more of us and we work together, maybe we can get something done. I think I think it's you're fine with being the only girl in the room when you work against your own self-interest and accept the fact that it's ever going to be thus. Right. And I think for me what happened and the desire to make this piece coming out of the 2016 election and, you know, the galvanising moment of the Women's March was that we, we don't have to accept that there's only a very small window that only two or three of us can pass through. We need to enlarge the size of that window and make the vista bigger because our brothers are looking at a bigger vista than us and and they're allowed to. And they help each other do that. We need full-blown French doors, girl. I'm not even talking about a window. We need French doors. (laughs) Like, let it in. And I feel like that's partly what this show does. And, you yes. know, it can be funny and entertaining and educational along the way. But now that I've seen you and John do this, I I don't remember at what point, at which scene it was, but I was like, these two need to do a comedy. <laughs> no, I love him so much. I feel like you would have I, the best time yeah. if you found the right project with each other. We kept, we kept, because we both had um, teeth in. And so we'd, we'd have to kiss and often our fake teeth would lock. And we, and he just turned to me and say, the Schlafleys. <laughs> and so we're going to do the spinoff, say, the Schlafleys. Right, the half hour version. Yeah, the, the half hour version, the Brady Bunch version of the Schlafleys. Oh my God, that might be what the world needs next. <laughs> Maybe what the world needs, needs next. <laughs> well, I have to ask, I know everything for everyone is shut down. Everything's shut down everywhere. Yeah. But presumably you were at work on something or were digging into something either from an acting side or from a producing side. Do you know what the next thing you're going to be doing is? Well, I was about to, should have been starting work on Adam McKay's film, Don't Look Up. Oh, okay. That's right. Actually about the end of the world. (laughs) Timely. Yes. So that is shut down. The end of the world has been shut down. So I'm assuming that that is going to happen. I mean, that man is clearly so keyed into the zeitgeist and beyond. Yes. To be honest, I was only going to do little bits and pieces because my son was taking his final exams, which Mm. have now been cancelled. I'm here with him trying to watch as many films as possible, read as many books as possible, go out and, you know, plant things in the garden and, um, and be hopeful because in the end, you, that's all we've got is, is um, the hope and the desire to make things, to emerge from this in a, in a new and better way. 
Yes. And planting things is the most hopeful thing you can do. It is the literal symbol of having hope for the future that I will be around to enjoy these flowers or eat these tomatoes. (laughs) Yeah. And we have to look after each other a little better. You know, and I think the other thing that's really it's it maybe it's um, having come off the Mrs. America experience and having delved so deeply into the notion of equality and why the equal equal rights isn't isn't enshrined in the American Constitution, and I, I I do I do think that the push for small government and the demonization of equality we're we're living through the you know the the downside of what that means right now. Yes, every action has consequences and they're not always pretty. But yeah. I am also hopeful for the future. And I just want to clarify before I let you go, you said that you found that you the experience somewhat isolating, but that the saga is not over. So does that mean you, you would be open to another season of Mrs. America at some point down the road? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, you better talk to John Slattery. I think he still has the teeth. Okay. All right. Slattery's, he's one of my Boston buddies. So uh, I'll get him on the horn and see what we can make happen. He's a god. He really is the best. Well, I thank you so much for your time today. We really do appreciate it. Stay safe over there. Hug your family close, wash your hands. And uh, hopefully we'll be seeing you out here at LA at some point in the future when we could all not be so distant. You bet. In a better world. You bet. You take good care. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Take care. That was a treat, as almost everything Kate Blanchett does. So we are looking forward to seeing what she does next. All right. So next week, the nominations will actually be out. Huzzah! So Kristen and I will be talking about that. Yes, I am. I'm ready to have some righteous indignation. And I'm ready to also be thrilled with some surprises of things that actually got nominated that maybe we didn't expect. I'm ready to rage. I'm ready to uh, also cry tears of happiness. Maybe we'll drink next week. Why not? Like, we'll make it a little happy hour situation to drown our sorrows over the people that weren't nominated and to cheer the people that were. All right. So everybody get your wine ready Mm -hmm. and we will do that next week. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to join the conversation, tweet at us. I'm at Kristen G. Baldwin and you can find Sarah at Sarah A. Rodman. The Awardist isn't just a podcast. You can also find us across EW platforms on EW.com, in the magazine and on social media, too. So if you want to binge more of The Awardist, you know where to find it. Until then, we'll be on the couch. The Awardist is produced by EW in partnership with Pod People.